History, the bite-sized birthday biography podcast. I'm your host, Hannah Mira. This is a daily podcast which shines a spotlight on a person born on this day at some point in history somewhere in the world who made a positive lasting impact. Today, September 25th, we're going to celebrate the birth and life of William LeBaron Jenny, creator of the world's first skyscraper. Let's talk about tall things for a second. I hate tall things. I don't like heights. They make me dizzy. That and those teacups at Disneyland? Mm -mm. Getting nauseous is not my idea of fun, so I avoid tall things and spinny things. I'm a certified landlubber who feels best at sea level. That being said, tall buildings are pretty interesting when you think about the construction and the physics of architecture. The tallest man-made building used to be the Great Pyramid of Giza Uh, in Egypt. It was about 481 feet, but it got knocked off that throne in 1311 with the construction of the Lincoln Cathedral in England. It's a bit of a cheaty type win, though, as the roof of the Lincoln Cathedral is only 78 feet high. But if you count the tower, it rises up to 272 feet. And if you add the spire on top of that, then it beats the pyramid and becomes 520 feet tall. Some historians were like, the spire isn't part of the structure, so it's not the tallest, and others are like, the spire does count because it's attached to the structure. It's apparently a pretty contentious topic in the world of historical architecture. Today, the tallest man-made structure is the Burj Khalifa in Dubai at 2,717 feet high. And the Burj Khalifa owes its existence to... A birdcage. Yeah, let's delve a little bit. So William LeBaron Jenny was born in Fairhaven, Massachusetts. Fairhaven is a about 14 square mile town on the, the southern coast of Massachusetts on Buzzard Bay. His parents were in the whaling ship business. Oh, so sad. And he traveled extensively throughout his youth. William was accepted into Phillips Academy in Andover, Massachusetts as a child. This is a super prestigious prep school. It's so selective that... It only accepts, on average, 13% of its applicants. When he was 17, he took a trip to the Philippines and he just fell in love with it. The Philippines were colonized uh, at the time by Spain, and the Spanish government was planning a lot of public works development projects. And this sparked an interest in William in developing commercial buildings. And he promised himself that he would study engineering and architecture in school and then go back to the Philippines. Upon his return to the States, William studied at Harvard for a year before transferring to École Centrale des Arts et Manufactures. Today it's called École Centrale Paris. It was one of the most prestigious engineering schools in the world, counting among its students Gustave Eiffel, creator of the Eiffel Tower, André Michelin, founder of Michelin, Pierre-Georges Latécoeur, founder of Air France, Armand Peugeot, founder of Peugeot Automotive, and dozens of other titans of industry. William studied architecture and engineering there with a focus on iron construction techniques. He didn't end up going back to the Philippines as he had hoped after college. Instead, he moved to Panama and he spent four years designing the first railroad. He returned to the States in 1861 to join the Union during the Civil War as an engineer. He was responsible for designing the fortifications for General Grant. He was promoted to major and made head engineer at the Union headquarters in Nashville. In 1867, he moved to Chicago and started his own commercial architectural firm. That year, he married Elizabeth Cobb, and they would go on to have two children later. In 1871, disaster struck Chicago in the form of the Great Chicago Fire. Sidebar on the Great Chicago Fire. So it started around 9 o'clock at night on October 9th, originating in a barn belonging to the O'Leary family. It appears to have been sparked by a knocked-over lantern, which began to quickly eat up all the straw and the hay and the wooden beams of the structure. 
There are two theories about this. One is the famous Mrs. O'Leary's cow theory, where the cow kicked over the lantern. The other less known theory is that a group of men were gambling in the barn and someone knocked over the lantern. The city was on the tail end of a long drought, an exceptionally dry summer having turned the whole city into basically a tinderbox. It didn't help at the time, nearly every building in the city was made of wooden framing with highly flammable tar roofs. There was also an unseasonably dry, hot wind whipping through the city, basically the perfect firestorm. In the whole city of Chicago, there were only 185 firefighters with a fleet of 17 horse-drawn fire carriages. They were notified pretty quickly about the blaze, but due to an error made by watchman Matthias Schaefer, sorry to call you out like that, man, the firefighters were sent to the wrong part of the city, and once they figured out their error, the blaze was totally out of control. When they arrived at the origin of the blaze, it was already devouring the neighborhood. They hoped that since it was headed towards the south branch of the Chicago River, it would die out in the water. Unfortunately, the river was lined with lumberyards, large wooden warehouses, coal depositories, and wooden bridges, basically a bottomless brunch for infernos. The wind intensified and became heated to, to such a degree that structures across the river easily sparked into flame as bits of embers sort of sailed over with the wind and the fire itself began to crawl like a creature over the wooden bridges. Then things got worse. The immense amount of hot air meeting with the cooler night air in the still not yet blazing side of Chicago caused a meteorological phenomenon called a fire whirl, which is basically a tornado made out of fire. This fire whirl leapt over the river and landed on a railroad car that was filled with kerosene. And the railroad was completely surrounded by years of accumulated flammable waste that had never been properly disposed of, which led right up to the slum housing and warehouses by the railroad tracks, again, all wooden, of the other side of the city. The city's only waterworks department caught fire, destroying the citizens' only hope. So they could literally do nothing now but just watch it all burn. Finally, late into the night... The skies thankfully opened up and it began to rain. The damage was catastrophic. The fire had leveled 2,000 acres of the city, including 17,500 buildings and $222 million in property. That's $4.8 billion in today's money. In terms of human lives impacted, 90,000 people, about a third of the city, were now homeless. And 120 bodies were recovered, but the coroner said the body count may have been more than twice that if they accounted for all the people that either drowned trying to escape the fire or just incinerated to the point where there was nothing left to recover. Okay, end of sidebar. So William and his family thankfully survived the blaze and there cropped up this bottomless demand for new buildings, residential and commercial, and most importantly, fireproof. William was able to put to use his training that he got in Paris, and he created this rudimentary fireproofing system for business, which utilized terracotta flooring and partitions and iron beams. His architectural firm was insanely busy, obviously, but he found time to commute to Ann Arbor every week to teach architecture at the University of Michigan. He was made a member of the American Institute of Architects in 1872, and then he rose up to become a fellow and then the first ever vice president. During this time, he designed the Ludington Building in Chicago, which is the longest surviving steel frame building still standing in the city. One day in 1884, William came home early and surprised his wife. She'd been reading, and when she saw him, she jumped up to hug him, and she set her book down on top of the birdcage next to her. William walked over to the metal birdcage. He picked up the book, 
and he dropped it back on top of the cage. It didn't topple over, though, and he tried it again, and the cage did not fall over. He said to his wife, it works. Don't you see? If this little cage can hold this heavy book, why can't an iron or steel cage be the framework for a whole building? Later that year, he was asked to build Chicago's home insurance building. So he designed a 10-story building with a totally steel frame, the first ever made, making it the first skyscraper. Prior to this construction, multi-storied structures had always relied on masonry bearing walls, which added support, but simultaneously prevented structures from being safe over a few stories. The steel framing he used only weighed a third of what a similar building made of brick and stone would have weighed, allowing it to not topple over or collapse in on itself. In 1893, he went on to design the Horticulture Building at the World's Columbian Exposition in Chicago. It was over five acres, making it the largest botanical conservatory created at that time. Sadly, his most famous work, the Home Insurance Building in Chicago, the world's first skyscraper, was torn down in 1931 to make way for a Marshall Fields department store. William died at age 77 on June 15, 1907. He was cremated and his ashes were stored until his wife's death when they were scattered on her grave. In the 1998 book, 1,000 Years, 1,000 People, Ranking the Men and Women Who Shaped the Millennium, he was ranked 89. My sources today were the Visual Arts Encyclopedia, the Structural Engineers Association of Texas, and Wikipedia. Thank you so much for joining me for our birthday celebration of William LeBaron Jenny. Please join me tomorrow when we celebrate the birth and life of Lewis Hine, the sociologist whose photography helped end child labor in America. See you then.